Well, with that, we can excuse our children for Children's Church. Uh, my name is Joseph Bianco. It's good to be with you this morning, and I'm going to be bringing to us God's Word. I'm the assistant pastor at City Reform Presbyterian Church. Uh, if you're new here, I want to welcome you in the name of Christ. We are glad that you're with us. Uh, we've been preaching through the Epistle of James, as, as Matt mentioned earlier, and we have a really hard text before us this morning. And In fact, it's probably one of the hardest texts uh, that we have in, uh, in the Epistle of James. And um, so I want you to know uh, that uh, maybe a three caveats before we start in this text. The first is, again, if you're a visitor to this church, this is not a uh, get-out-your-pocketbook sermon. Please don't hear that. This is the next text in the epistle of James that we are preaching through, and we preach the whole word of God. Uh, second, this, again, as I said, this is a hard passage. Um, but third, all of God's word is good for us. And it's good to meditate on all of it and to take it as he gives it to us. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'm going to read uh, this word, and then our response with every word that we read, week in and week out, will be thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord, James 5, 1 to 6, page 7 in your bulletin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. So again, I recognize that many of you have come from various churches or contexts that maybe you've even heard the word of God misused. Uh, for selfish gain. So I want to be sensitive to that. At the same time, James is giving us a really strong warning uh, to the rich about the corrupting power of wealth. So while I want to be sensitive, I also don't want to in any way lessen the strong warning that James is giving us in this passage. As I went to study this passage, I asked the question, to whom does this passage apply? Is this just the uber-wealthy, the people who are richer than I am, maybe richer than you are? Is it just to business people or landowners? Or is this passage to anyone with any amount of wealth? And the more I meditated on it, the more I became convinced that this passage is addressed to all people. Not just the super wealthy. And the reason I'll explain to you more in the sermon, but I also learned through my research outside of this that at the very least, if you're an American, uh, you're far more rich than you realize. So if you'd allow me, I'm just going to read some statistics. These are littered throughout the internet about America's wealth. So the first is uh, that 1% 
of the population of the world has about the same amount of money as 99% of the rest of the world. So that took me by surprise, but the second is that you might be part of that 1%. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you are part of the 1% of the population. Third, $10 a day is the norm. Uh, most of the population of the entire world, 80%, lives on less than $10 a day. Fourth, if your annual income is above $9,733, you're doing better than most people. The median household income for the global population is less than $10,000 a year. Your coffee uh, that you buy, um, maybe as much as many people spend in an entire day. More than a third of people on the earth live on less than $2 a day. 1.2 billion people live on less than $1.25 a day. Most Americans spend less than 10% of their personal income on food, while for the rest of the world, uh, most of the income, 60 to 80% of, the, uh, of individuals in impoverished communities, is spent putting food on the table. Americans spend roughly $465 billion every year on Christmas. In contrast, they spend $6.3 billion to fight AIDS overseas. Uh, and the last one is that children in rich countries only face a 1 in 165 chance of dying by age 5, while in impoverished countries, their chances are 1 in 6. Every day, nearly 29,000 children die younger than age 5, mostly from preventable diseases. So, they're pretty shocking statistics about our wealth. I believe even if you're here today and you're not American, if you have any degree of wealth, this passage can apply to you. But I'd argue that as Americans, sometimes we are not aware of how wealthy we really are as a nation and as a people. It's easy to be self-deceived. And actually, that's what I believe is the thrust of James' argument today in this passage, that wealth, any degree of wealth, can deceive us. Jesus preached on money more than he preached on any other topic because he knew the power of wealth to deceive our hearts and our minds. Wealth can deceive us to believe that it brings happiness or security. Wealth can move and challenge our affections away from God and from people. The worst thing is that wealth can do these things just by having it. All you need is to just have a degree of wealth, and you can be tempted towards deception. No one needs to persuade you. So, can you be wealthy and be a Christian? I mean, that's the question, right? Can the two go to, together? And the thing is, we see examples of wealthy believers all throughout the scriptures. Job, for example, is the greatest example, extremely wealthy and yet blameless before God. In fact, I'd argue that God uses wealthy people all the time for his good purposes and that wealth is always relative. As I kind of mentioned in these statistics, that to one degree or another, we are wealthy. Even you grad students who think you are so poor, I was a grad student, are far wealthier than you realize. So if Christians can be wealthy, then what's the answer? 
And I'd argue that it's not so much a problem of our stuff as much as it is a problem of our hearts. I know poor people who can hoard things for days. And I know rich people who give away most of their income. Remember, if you have any degree of wealth, your heart can be moved to deception. So I'm going to argue today that the only way that we can be kept from this kind of deception is through knowing the one who makes us truly wealthy. The only way that we can be kept from this kind of deception is by knowing the one who makes us truly wealthy. I want us to see our wealth through the lens of the gospel. That Jesus was made poor that for our sake we might be made rich. If you understand the gospel, you will understand the complexities of how to use your wealth for the glory of God. So first we're going to look at the deceiving power of wealth then some diagnostic questions James gives us, and then third, how the gospel helps us see clearly. So first, the deceiving power of wealth. Second, uh, some diagnostic questions making us aware, and then third, how the gospel helps us see. So first, the deceiving power of wealth. So I've already made the case that we're richer than we thought, um, but even if we know that, are we willing to heed the warning that James gives us that wealth can be a great and powerful temptation to Christians? Do we believe that wealth, any amount of wealth, can tempt us as Christians, as believers? So you ask, how do you know it's wealthy Christians in this passage? And I'm going to give three short reasons. Uh, First, 5.1, that's chapter 5, verse 1, begins, Come now, you uh, rich, but... Earlier, last week, Matt preached the, verse, the passage before this, 4.13, began, Come now, you business people who would go and make your plans and forget God. So there is a continued flow of thought. And last week, it was addressed to Christians who would plan. So it makes sense that this would be no different, that these are wealthy business people that James is writing to. Second, what good would it be if you wrote to these wealthy business people who were not Christians to give an epistle to the church. They're not in the church. They're not going to hear any of this. Third, because if you're truly honest, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know you need to hear this warning as much as I do. So all throughout Scripture, God warns his people of different temptations to follow wealth and luxury, and it's no different here. So everyone here should be willing No matter how much you make, no matter how little you make, no matter how much you have in your bank account or how little, that wealth, luxury, garments, silver, gold, iPods, iPhones, cars, status, prestige, time, and luxury can be a great temptation. So I want to look at how wealth can tempt us to self-deception. The first point James makes is regarding the last days. You see there in verse 3, James gives this picture, verses 1 to 3, of the the decomposition of material things. The picture is of the stuff that you think is so important now, the silver, the gold, that all of it's decomposing, it's corroding, it can't stand the test of time. The last days are those days in which we wait before the coming of Christ. And James says, verse 3, their corrosion will be evidence against you. So how is corrosion evidence against us? And, you know, it doesn't really make that much sense today when you think of credit cards or online currency, uh, Bitcoin, digital currency, right? But when you have silver and gold and it's passing uh, hands or 
or not passing hands if you let it sit. If it's not being used, it corrodes. It tarnishes. This, the same way you need to get out your silver and polish it. The money you have accumulated is just sitting there. Rotting. It's not doing anything. So in essence, James is saying, look, if you're hoarding, if your hope and security is in things and wealth, rather than in Jesus, then when Jesus comes, those things will be evidence against you. James is pushing Christians to ask the question, does the way that you spend your wealth reflect what you truly love? Does the way that you spend your wealth reflect what you believe makes you truly secure? Are you letting money you have be spent now for eternal ends, or are you letting it build corrosion, making you feel safe, letting it sit in the bank? To spend on toys, maybe. And if we're honest, that's a question that will follow us throughout this sermon. Is the way I'm spending money with my eyes towards the kingdom of God, or is it towards my kingdom? You see, without a doubt, you're going to ask the question in your minds, or maybe after the sermon to me, but how much should I give? Joseph, is one car enough? Is two cars? How much should I have? Should I take that vacation this year? Ask myself, how many tools should I own? Some of you who helped me move know that. I don't know if anyone ever watched the TV show Frasier before. Um, I'm sure many of you have. But Frasier loved cashmere sweaters. He loved a lot of weird things, but he loved cashmere sweaters amongst many things. And I've never owned a cashmere sweater, but I looked them up. And they come from a particular uh, type of sheep that's very rare, and therefore the cotton is very, or the wool is very soft, and it's very expensive. Far more expensive than I thought it was. So, should I, can I buy a cashmere sweater, or is cotton good enough? And if you're asking the question, you are missing the point that James is making in this passage. The Bible never says, just don't buy these things, don't, don't, Make these purchases. Give exactly this much. The Bible never says that. The Bible's always concerned about something deeper. The Bible's always concerned about your hearts, your motivations for giving or not giving. And here James is saying that all of our giving must be motivated by the gospel truth that Jesus came to bring you to a home where neither moth nor rust can destroy That Jesus gave you this life to learn from him, to orient your hearts away from the tyranny of the urgent, away from the things that draw your attention and affections away from him and towards spiritual matters, towards your eternal home. To move us to spend our wealth remembering that there is more to this life than this life. To store our treasures in heaven. So I appreciated what one commentator said about this point. He said, the greatest sin that we can commit uh, regarding spending our wealth is to spend it and then forget about God. To say, I'm going to buy this house. I'm going to move to this place. I'm going to follow this career. I'm going to get this prestige and to forget to ask the question, is this what God wants me to do? Or maybe to put him second and put your dream or your hope first. To forget God when we invest. 
time or money. So in contrast, remembering God when you spend money, remembering his kingdom, when you consider your wealth, remembering that he's preparing an eternal home for you will enable you to love him. Does that sound too strong? It wasn't too strong uh, when Jesus said it. In Matthew 6, he said, and I'll read it for you, he said, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth or rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we continue through this sermon and you ask the question, how much is enough? I have to ask you, where is your heart? When you ask that question. God has everything As Derek mentioned earlier, he doesn't need the money you have. He has a cattle on a thousand hills, but he wants your hearts. He wants you more than anything. And he'll challenge your affection towards wealth. He would have your heart. James is calling out rich Christians who hoard money, and it's a strong warning. He says, it's evidence against you. And in, in these last days, and these are the words of God, he says, the evidence will eat your flesh like fire. So if James has sufficiently warmed us, how can we be kept from deception? And he gives us a few ways, and these are kind of diagnostics that he gives us. This is my second point. So in verse 4, James uh, gives us specific examples of how the rich Christians are hoarding um, by keeping money back from their employees. And the text says, these workers mow their fields, and then these rich landowners keep the money back uh, from them that is due to them, and they defraud them. So I've never been in the position to have employees before, um, but my guess is that many of you probably don't have employees, but some of you probably do. And I think the application is pretty clear here about how we treat employees, Certainly you pay them, but I think if we took the opposite of what James is saying, the question would be, are you paying them well? So not just are you paying them, but are you paying them well? I could push it further. Are you paying your employees towards an eye, towards the kingdom of God? So imagine with me what it might be like to pay your employees that way, to pay them more than they deserve. Why? Because a Christian employer with the eye toward the kingdom of God recognizes the grace he's received. And he's desirous to be gracious to his employees. He's generous. So many of you probably don't have employees, so how might this apply to us? So last week, right before this passage, uh, Matt read to us where James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And fraud is an extension of this thought. Here, uh, fraud is the absence of doing what you know you should do. You know you should pay these people, right? But you don't. So if you don't have employees, where is it that maybe you owe money or you are convicted you should give money and you're not giving it? Who are you holding money back from? Who do you owe money to? And it's a highly personal question. And the only way that we can act rightly on this question is if we know the one who is truly gracious. We know and have our eyes towards the kingdom of Christ. So let me ask it another way. Is there a place uh, in your life that you know is God, that God is calling you to invest and you are continually ignoring him? James says that's fraud. 
Are there people you owe money to and you haven't paid? James says that's fraud. Is there a good act that you are called to do and you haven't done it? James says that's fraud. Lastly, you know the expression, time is money. Well, that's true uh, here as well. Maybe it's not money you're holding back. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's service. I think this can be the hardest one for us as Christians, knowing that we're called to give time and we don't. That's still fraud. And it's not different than keeping back wages from employees. James says 4.17, if someone knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So look, I recognize this is really painful. This is hard stuff to hear. To take an honest look at ourselves, to inventory how we spend our wealth is not a fun thing to do. But again, how can we move from self-deception to self-awareness? We have to be willing to look at our sin and repent. I believe that James' meeting in verse 1 when he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries coming upon you. Commentators go back and forth here, but I believe it's a call for them to repent. The idea is that either we weep now before God and he forgives us, or we will be weeping for an eternity. Repentance has to be central in our thinking about wealth. I'll say it a different way. I don't care how generous you are. There is no one in this room who is without sin financially. Not one person. We are all in need of repentance, and if we can take these diagnostic statements James is making, I believe we have a chance of seeing our sin for what it is. Now, there's another diagnostic statement he makes, and it's even a little harder. Verse 5, he says, You've lived in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. Luxury and self-indulgence, he paints a picture of contrasting luxury and self-indulgence with animals that are fattened for the day of slaughter. You see, you do not slaughter um, thin animals. If you have animals, you slaughter the fat ones and then you leave the thin ones to continue living. And James is saying that the luxury and self-indulgence has fattened you to the point of slaughter. And right here is probably the hardest diagnostic that James is giving us. Being comfortable is probably one of America's greatest sins. James is saying that spending wealth with eyes towards the kingdom of God will make you uncomfortable. And Americans hate being uncomfortable. I hate being uncomfortable. This is a a really challenging one for me. A place that I will tell you um, that is uh, particularly hard in my life to struggle with feeling uncomfortable is the area of my time. I struggle with this uh, tremendously. Time for me can be a temptation to luxury. I can think that if I schedule all my time, if I've done what I think I should do, then any intrusions to that time are that person's problem and not my problem. That I deserve the luxury to just schedule my time and then to box out any intrusions that come into my life. For me, and I say this only of myself, it is a sin to luxury. And I know what you're thinking. All the introverts in the room are thinking, I need that time. And I'm with you. And I can caveat all I want for myself. But at the end of the day, I have to ask my question, am I willing to be made uncomfortable so others can be made comfortable? And isn't that what James is saying about luxury and self-indulgence? That we can be made uncomfortable to give comfort to others? 
Now again, I don't want you to ask me the question, okay, I have a luxurious Mercedes Benz, should I sell it for a, you know, economic Toyota? I don't believe that's James' point. Rather, you should ask, where in my life is luxury and self-indulgence pulling me away from comforting others, from loving Jesus, from loving my neighbors well, from giving out of a heart of gratitude, and most likely, if we're honest, luxury and temptation, comfort, is a greater temptation than we realize. So we have to look at how wealth deceives us, and this was my whole second point, but it, and it was hard, but we have to be willing to look and say, where is my sin that we can repent of it? Now a third, and I'm going to press this real hard, the gospel. How can the gospel help us to see these things more clearly? So if, if you're like me, this is a hard passage. It challenges you. Um, and I believe that understanding verse 6 is the key uh, to understanding this passage. So commentators go back and forth here on who is uh, the righteous person. You see that verse 6? Who is the righteous person? Is it the poor who these rich people have taken advantage of? If it was the poor, then should it not say persons, plural? Not person, individually? And then the text says, again, singular, he does not resist you. So again, what does it mean if you had a poor person that didn't resist? In the singular, but... Here it's singular, he does not resist you. And I would think it improper to actually make this anything other than referencing Jesus here. It's absolutely the Savior that James is referencing. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus was the one who did not resist when condemned and put to death. Jesus told a parable at the end of Matthew chapter 25 about the final judgment, the separating of the sheep and the goats on his left and on his right. And in the parable, James says to those on his right, the sheep, that when they clothed the naked, that when they fed the hungry, when they visited the sick, when they provided drink for their thirst, it was as if they were doing it to Jesus. I love that we saw uh, Bob Simonelli installed as a deacon today because the deacons are reminders and examples to us not to do the work you should do. But they're examples to us of what it looks like to feed the hungry, clothe the sick, give to the thirsty, drink, that we would be encouraged to do the same. And then Jesus looks on the left and he says to them, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me, sick in prison and you did not visit me. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And in a very real way, I believe James is making that same connection between the rich who condemned and murdered the righteous person. They didn't physically murder Jesus, but they did defraud and take advantage of people under them. James is saying, people who misuse your wealth, who defraud others, who live in luxury and self-indulgence have murdered and condemned the righteous person. So again, brother and sister, who was it? Let me ask you this. Who condemned and murdered Jesus? It was all of us. It was all of us. Not one of us here can look at the cross and say, I have no part in his death. Likewise, not one of us can look at his or her wealth and say, I have no part in his death. All of us, by what we have done and what we forget to do, 
have nailed and murdered Jesus, putting him on that cross. We've murdered the righteous one, and he did not resist. So Romans 3.23 says it this way, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Do you know what it looks like to be able to use our wealth for the glory of God, to use it well? It begins with understanding that grace is a gift. That's where it begins. That through the redemption of Jesus Christ, he set an example for us, and didn't just set an example, but applied it to us, that we would receive the gift of grace. What does that mean? It means that if you view your wealth through that lens, that graciousness, that gift that you've been given, then you will be gracious. You'll know how to use your wealth. I'll put it another way. I don't believe you can be truly this generous unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Why? Because unless you know that saving grace, unless you've experienced the mercy and the sweetness of forgiveness, repentance and faith, then the giving of your stuff will always be an act to earn you favor, to make you right before people or men, to make you look good, to unburden your conscience. But in Christianity, the giving of our wealth is never to earn favor. It doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't even earn his favor. It's a response to grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. It's a response to grace. So let me put it this way. If you know how much Jesus gave up for you, giving up luxuries, your comforts, silver and gold will not be painful. It will be joyful. It'll be joyful. It becomes a joy for us to give because we've been given so much. And if you're a skeptic in the room, again, you're going to be thinking, what on earth have these Christians been given that is so great that they would give everything that they have or be willing to? And I'll tell you, it's this. To be confronted with the kind of sin that I've preached today. To be told, yeah, that's me. To have that put on you. To recognize that we have murdered. To recognize we have condemned. And then to be told it can be forgiven freely by one righteous person. To be told that all the weights that hold you down from past sins, all the guilt, all the burden can be released because Jesus took it on himself. And that he gives you not just that, but eternal life. That's what I mean when we say, I have been given so much. If you're here and you've been challenged, um, sorry, if you've been changed by the gospel, then you know how much it is that Jesus gave for you. And I believe the key here is remembering it. Remembering it when we make financial choices or, or when we don't make financial choices. So how can we change? This is my three points. I want you to recognize the deceiving power of sin, or of, of wealth. I want you to have an honest diagnostic of yourself. How am I spending my money? But then third, let the gospel message both comfort and challenge you to repentance and faith. And I want to leave you with what I believe um, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I can summarize everything we said today. And it's a message I would encourage you to memorize and reflect on it as this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray.